Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great And our guest this week was inducted into the Scottish Football Hall of Fame in 2010. As a player, he was on the books of Rangers and Dean Falkirk. As manager, he was in charge of Clyde, Preston North End, Motherwell and Aberdeen. He's managed Scotland in more internationals than anyone else. We're delighted this week to be joined by Craig Brown. Thanks for coming on, Craig. Thank you. Delighted to be with you, Tom. Yes, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure and an honour to have you on, Craig. So thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure too, Andy. Thank you. So we picked out a shoot magazine for you this week, and it's the 1st of November 1980. So we'll just start with it as the way we normally do on the front cover. So the front cover is a colour photo of Steve Williams with the heading Southampton's Odd Man Out. So inside they discuss the youngster. Winner Work is another of the front page titles. So shoot look at Ipswich Town and Scotland star John Work. There's also League Cup previews where they take a look at the League Cup games coming up in England. And there's a special report on the good side of soccer, where they look at the fans, the leagues, the model professionals, and the exciting youngsters that make up the English game. In colour we have a Celtic and Derby County team groups and club spotlights, with the Celtic team group being a double-page centre spread and the Derby County one being a single-page photo. The cover price is 22 pence. <laughs> so, well, so would, you, would, you have, would you have got the magazines yourself, Craig? Yes. I did. I, did. I bought the shoot magazine when it was on the go. And I think that, that one uh, that you kindly let me have a look at was uh, November 1980. Uh, obviously, I was buying it then because, you know, I'm a football nut and I just, uh, anything to do with football in any magazine. I, I do currently contribute to a magazine called Backpass, which is right. a kind of retro magazine. And I write the Scottish stuff for Backpass magazine, so I'm, I'm advertising it here. <laughs> so, uh, but I looked through, you know, that, that was a great magazine, that shoot one that you let me have a look at. And I looked for all the Scottish connections in it. And, you know, we could be here for two or three nights talking about and It's an English-based magazine. Yeah, yeah. Shoot, but great Scottish stuff in it, you know. And I think the most current one, Peter Lorimer's got a, a section in it telling how he came back from uh, Canada. He was playing over there. And there's Archie Gemmer, there's Tommy Dockman. I'm looking at them all. All the There's a, there's a Jim Baxter. Uh, article and uh, I was privileged to be the first player at Rangers to meet Jim Baxter because I was injured as usual <laughs> and they signed him in the summer. Uh, he came from Wraith Rovers, twenty-two thousand. It was a big, it was a big uh, signing fee at that time. Yeah. That would be nineteen sixty, was it? Fifty-nine or sixty, sixty. Yeah, nineteen sixty. Well, I'm in the treatment room and then and he came with the manager, who was Scott Simon, and they introduced him to me. And of course, we were pegged alphabetically in that Rangers dressing room. Right. Uh, and even the young boys like myself, who never I never got a game in the first team ever. I was there three years. 
I never got a game. But uh, I was pegged, and it was Baird, Sammy Baird, Baxter, Brown, Caldo. Now, there was three legends there, <laughs> Sammy Baird, Jim Baxter, Eric Caldo, and then this wee guy, Brown. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll not keep you back, but I'll just tell you, you're a nervous boy when you go to a big club and you're only 17, 18 at the time. And uh, I, I'm trying my very best and I'm quite nervous. And then big Sammy Beard, sadly deceased, I'm afraid, but Sammy called me over after three, four days training. He says, come here, son. Did you win a competition to train with the team? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think you thought it was very uh, good. Okay. <laughs> it was quite right. But yeah. uh, so that, that didn't do your confidence much good, but I think Sammy hit the nail on the head. I must have won a competition because uh, <laughs> Yeah, I was in, the, in among the, the big stars, but sorry, I'm, I'm going no, off. No, listen, story, but... sorry, I think Ennis would be happy to win a competition like that, so even aye, if aye. even if it was, you, you've done well with that. <laughs> well, well, well the wee, there was a wee guy called Johnny Hubbard at Rangers, mm. uh, the older Rangers fans will remember, he was a penalty king, I think, you know, I think he, he had, I think it had 90 penalties for Rangers, Rangers were always getting a penalty, and Johnny was taking them and, <laughs> I think, he, I think he missed two, I think, in all his career. Yeah. But we, Johnny, was uh, a nice wee South African guy. And he said to me, Brownie, leave that big Sammy Bear to me. And I said, oh. <laughs> so he says, come in after the game on Saturday. I said, but I'll not be in the team. I'm like, don't worry if you're in the team. Come in after the game. The, the young boys can come in and we'll, we'll be in the bath. Now, those days it was a bath. You know, now it's showers and there was no subs. So there was 11 of them in the bath. And we Johnny came in and he, he winked to me and he said, Sammy, to Sammy, Sammy, there was 57,823 out there today. And of course, Big Sammy said, wait a minute, we're in the bath, the game's just finished. How do you know 57,823? And we Johnny Hubbard says, how do I know? I was counting them waiting and I passed from you, you agreed to And he winked at me and he says, I'll yeah. put him in his place. But anyway, I, I, you'll gather I'll look for the humour in football and that mm. I started away as a young boy and anything it was, uh, put a smile on your face and yeah. I'm still like that, I'm looking for the humour. Brilliant. The, the fact that you mentioned, I mean, we, we talk about it all the time how there was so much Scottish content in these magazines um, and I, I sort of take it up to the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s was when that sort of started changing and probably because of the, you know, the conception of the the English Premier League back then but yeah the, the amount of Scottish content was refreshingly really good in this thing um, but yes. sa- sadly it, it, it highlights a lot of what was missing these days unfortunately yeah well I, I read a lot of the stuff some great articles in that you know well, guys like Jim Clooney and of course I, I think I knew every Scottish Billy McNeil I know knew very well sadly passed away last year but you know I, I was lucky in my young footballing experience in that I played with the two Scotsmen that have held the European Cup, one as a player and one as a manager. And I played in the same team, the Scottish youth team, with Billy McNeil. And that's my claim to fame. And, and Billy and I were in the same Scotland under-18 team. And they came up to Celtic Park and we played England and we won we won 3 nothing. The next year, I was still aged to play and in the team was Alec Ferguson. He wasn't Alec then, he was just Alec. <laughs> so that one one year under 18, I played with Billy in the team. And the next year, uh, Alec was in the team and we played England in London and we lost 4-3. So 
I always wind Dalek up. I said, we're all right when we Billy McNeil on the team. And then we get you. <laughs> then we get you when we lost the England. You went to Celtic with Billy for trials or well, training? I did. I travelled with him because we both trained at Celtic. Mm. And the late Jock Steen took us as young boys. You know, Celtic invited all the sort of promising youngsters in the west of Scotland. Of course, they won the European Cup and all the players were from the west of Scotland, the whole team. It was quite incredible. Now you go to see Celtic, you're lucky if you get a Scottish player, you know, you'll maybe get three. Mm-hmm. I saw Rangers play in Europe two weeks ago and you know that they had only one player eligible for the Scottish international team and it was uh, the goalkeeper, McGregor. Uh, and McGregor has uh, retired from international football. So Rangers, the best team in Scotland just now, not one eligible for Scotland. Ryan Jack was injured or he might have been. But... Now, Celtic uh, in those days were full of uh, Scottish internationalists and Billy was the main man at that time, Billy McNeil. And of course, they won the European Cup and they won it with a team all from 30 mile radius of Glasgow, which is quite exceptional. <laughs> you never get that again. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we'll, we'll jump into the magazine here, Craig, and look at yes. So pages two and three. I'm going to start... With here, so the first one is a shoot view, and it talks about Bob Latchford of Everton, and he's been singled out by shoot for some praise after his return to goal scoring form after a frustrating period with the Toffees. He's currently on 106 league goals and has his eyes on catching Sandy Young's total of 213, even though he concedes that he's no chance of catching Dixie Dean's 349. Now, just as a wee spoiler, Latchford didn't add to that total at Everton. He moved to Brisbane Lions where he played four games and scored four goals before moving on to Swansea. And he yeah. scored a total of 235 league goals in 550 games and 12 England caps with five goals. So, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty decent goal-scoring return. That's over oh, one yeah. every two. Yeah, that's, that's a fabulous goal-scoring record, I think. Mm. Uh, in any era, yeah. today it would be outstanding. It would be worth a fortune. Uh, at that time too very difficult to score as many goals as he, he, he scored but well, I mean Latchford was uh, very well renowned you know even up in Scotland you know he, 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 we weren't seeing quite as much of the TV stuff as we get now nothing like as much but still we knew about uh, the quality that he had yeah a big footballing family as well there was um, Peter and David was it as well David Latchford yeah, that's right yeah, yeah. you know I think uh, uh, you said Everton he played for and of course when you're from Scotland you, and you look down into Liverpool and you say there are two teams there it's like Glasgow well there are well there were five teams in Glasgow at one time but uh, or at least four you had Thistle and Queen's Park and Clyde and, and the old firm so there were five now down in uh, down in Liverpool there are the two you're either a blue or a red down there and you know, I always associated myself or supported the team that had more Scots in it at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think over the years, probably Liverpool had had slightly more, although some of my pals played at Everton, you know, very good guy like Davy Weir, uh, captain of Everton, and we, Joe Harper, went down to Everton, played there, and uh, Jimmy Gabriel from Dundee to Everton. Uh, but, you know, there were, I think, a few more. I could rattle off. I'd be here all night talking about the <laughs> Liverpool connection with Scotland. Mm. <laughs> with Scotland. Well, yeah, uh, Billy Stevenson was at Rangers when you were there then, eh? Yes, he was. He went to Liverpool. That's yeah. right. Now, I thought, you know, I was the same position as uh, Billy, uh, left half, and I thought uh, when he goes, 
I might get a chance. And then John but, Baxter come in. <laughs> <laughs> they, they signed Baxter, and that kind of that scuppered my career a bit. And I stayed. I played a lot in the reserves, but you know, a reserve game in those days there was a big attendance at reserve fixtures mm-hmm. because the first team would be playing. Say they were playing at Dunfermline. Uh, the, the stadium, the ground rather at East End Park couldn't hold as many as would like to go. So you would get seven or 8,000 staying in Glasgow watching the reserves. Uh, so, But Billy Stevenson was a, a wonderful player and he was in man in possession of the left half position when I went. And then there I got signed as a young boy and then in came Jim Baxter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite honoured because I was very friendly with Baxter. I, I, I thought you might mention him, so I, I, I've got his book here, and yeah. I don't know, can you see it? Yeah, yeah. And, and you see the honour I've got there, If you see, I don't know if you can see it at the bottom, I had to write the foreword for his book, and it says the foreword by myself and the afterword by Walter Smith. Now, that kind of tells you that I was friendly with Jim Baxter. Yeah. I could never play like him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I just, we just marvelled at him, the, the ability that he had. And that game when we beat the world champions, Scotland, went down to Wembley. And uh, he was playing keepy uppy with England. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Scotland team went down, the team that had won the World Cup. And the next year, and Baxter was one of the main men, along with uh, the guys that scored the goals, the Dennis Law, Bobby Lennox and Jim McCallion. So, I mean, I loved that era. And of course, I was involved at a lower level. I wasn't at the, the Rangers that long, but you know, I was friendly with Baxter. And, and prior to that, I travelled in the same bus to Celtic Park as Billy McNeil. He got on at Motherwell, I got on at Hamilton, and we trained there. And they didn't ask either of us to sign for ages and ages. Mm. And they never ever asked me any time to do better. <laughs> but Billy was desperate to sign for Celtic. And a lot of English clubs were uh, offering him a, a, a contract. And he said, I'm waiting on Celtic, Craig. I'm waiting on Celtic because he was Celtic through and through. And uh, and I was, I didn't say, I was just waiting on anybody that would <laughs> take me. But, but I signed for Rangers, which with hindsight maybe was a mistake because I was never going to make it there at that age. But uh, I went on loan. That was unusual in those days. I went on loan to Dundee. Yeah. And that was a, a very good club, Dundee, at the time. And uh, a couple of years later, we won the championship and beat Rangers. And uh, get into the semi-final of the European Cup. It was, a, it was a very, very, very good Dundee team. You sort of say that we won the championship, but that, that's huge. That's absolutely uh, huge. And I just don't well, think it's appreciated enough nowadays yeah, of how big that was. It, it, you're right, it was huge in, in those days. It would be even greater now because the, the gap, the financial gap between the old firm and the rest now is increasing. Mm. But it was so huge then. So for, a, I would say, Dundee, a provincial club, to win the Scottish Championship and then go into Europe. And when you think of the teams that we managed to beat in Europe, the first round, the German champions, Cologne, hammered them. Then the next game was Sporting Lisbon, beat them. The next game was Anderlecht in Brussels, beat them. I mean, you can hardly, it's hardly thinkable. Then the semi-final was uh, AC Milan. And unfortunately, uh, after a good result at home, uh, we went over there and uh, lost 3-1 over there. But, I mean, that was the semi-final. And the incentive that year, that was 1963, the final was at Wembley. And it ended up for Milan and Benfica. And Milan, AC Milan won it. 
Now, they beat us in the Dundee in the semi-final. So we weren't too bad at that time, I can tell you. Uh, and I, I was privileged. I was never a first, regular first choice pick, but I got the 12th number of appearances and, and got a, a championship medal and was with the squad in every European venture. So if there had been substitutes then, I think I had a record number of substitute appearances, <laughs> I think, yeah. because if anyone got hurt uh, in the middle or the back, in the fence or in midfield, I came in uh, uh, and I managed to hold my place for a while. Then I'd be dropped again. <laughs> and then I get back in. And the manager, this is an interesting one, the manager was Bob Shankly, the older brother of Bill Shankly. Fantastic uh, manager. And uh, he, he, the same as Bill, just the same Ayrshire chat. You know, you'd ask, the press would say, what's your team, Mr. Manager? They'd say to him, what's your team for today? He says, poor Greta hasn't picked it yet. His <laughs> wife was Greta. <laughs> you know, yeah. he, he would say things like that. And it's really funny, doing the team group photograph, I'll, I'll not go on too long. I'll tell you this. I love this story. We would all be standing there and he positioned you in the team and he was meticulous about your, your turnout. Your jersey had to be in, your stockings had to be the same turnover and your laces had to be white. They were all white then and they washed the laces after every game. You take your laces out your boots and you get washed. And we're, we're waiting the team photo and he was the good players, the international players in the middle of the photo. Alan Gilzean, Ian Ewer, Alec Hamilton, Bobby Cox, all the, the stars in the middle. And I'm standing at the side, I'm saying, am I going to get in this photo? <laughs> and eventually he would point to the chair, the seat at the end of the front row, and he, he never called me Craig, he always called me Chris Craig. <laughs> Even for a good game, he said, Chris Craig, that wasn't bad today. And he said, Chris Craig, just sit down there at the front, a pair of scissors will get rid of you. <laughs> so he knew if you were put at the front row at the end, yeah. and that that would be the calendar at Christmas time. Now, this is in, in July, we're getting the team photo. So, uh, if he was getting rid of you, if you thought you were on the <laughs> way out, he would put you at the end of the row. <laughs> and then when the calendar came out, they just cut you off. But I, I lasted uh, nearly six years there, mm -hmm. so it wasn't too bad. But the boys all joke, they say, I wonder what he'll say to you today. Uh, Christ Craig, they called me. <laughs> so, I got exalted to the deity. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, my performances didn't always merit that. But anyway. What was Alan Gilzean like as a player? Magnificent. He, he, he was, well, I'll, get, I'll tell you how good they think he was. We, we thought he was fantastic. Any man that can go to Ibrox and score four against Rangers, <laughs> we, we won 5-1, he scored four. Uh, and uh, that tells you what he was like. But he went to, I'll tell you how good he was. He died two years ago. And I've never been as impressed with a football club as I was on that occasion, because the team that played with them at Tottenham Hotspur, they, they chartered an, an aircraft up to, there's a landing strip up at Dundee, to the funeral. Right. And they came out and they, they were immaculate. They were, all had the club blazer and the club tie. Now, it was just about the full team that, that played in his era. And uh, I spoke to Mullery, the captain, Alan Mullery, and I introduced us, excuse me, I, I was at Dundee with Alan what, what was he like at Tottenham? He says, he is the king of White Hart Lane. And I said to Molly, I thought you were the king. He says, no, no, no. He says, there has never been anyone as popular at White Hart Lane than Alan Gilsey. Yeah. And, and he didn't need to say that. And that. He just, he said to me, Gilly, they just absolutely adored him. And uh, I could see why he was a wonderful 
player, a great and, and a very nice chap as well. And he did well, he got transferred to London at the same time another player at Dundee, Ian Ewer, went to Arsenal. Arsenal. Yeah. Roughly the same amount of money, around between sixty and seventy thousand, I think sixty-two thousand was a, the cost of both of them. And of course that the Dundee team that had done so well in Europe, uh, when they sold these two, that was the decline of the Dundee. And then Many years later, it was, of course, that United took over in Dundee. So in my time in Dundee, United, that, that was an easy game. <laughs> but then there was a complete turnaround later yeah. uh, when in the 60s, Jim McLean took over at United and they were in a uh, European final and they won the league. So, you know, I'm, not, I'm sorry, I'm not talking about the shoot magazine. No, 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 not at all. Don't, don't worry about it. We can, as I say, we, we just go wherever the conversation takes us. Oh, well, well, you better direct me because okay. I'll start. <laughs> okay, listen, we'll, we'll, you spoke about, um, well, you, you mentioned Malcolm Allison there, so that's the next one I'm going to look at. So there's an article here, and it's about Michael Robinson, and he says, Michael Robinson has a point to prove to Malcolm Allison, who released him from Man City after an unhappy time under his reign. Allison, who's no longer in charge at City, has since described Robinson as one of his three bad signings for the club. Robinson says, It was a conflict of ideas which led to my departure. Malcolm Allison wanted me to do things I was not capable of. He wanted me to play in the wing or up front on my own. In the end, I knew I had to leave. Now, Brighton boss Alan Mullery, who you've just spoke about there, has told Robinson to just play the way he wanted, as a centre-forward, and above all, to enjoy the game. Now, after Shoot starts the article saying Robinson had a point to prove, Robinson himself continues, I've got nothing to prove in this match. The fact is, even if I scored five goals against City on Saturday, Malcolm would still claim that I was better in another position. So just as a little spoiler from that game, he did score in the game against Man City, but unfortunately it was a single goal and they went down 2-1 uh, to City. So it's, um, I mean, Mick Robinson who died... Quite recently, Tom wasn't it? The last yeah. couple of months, I think it was cancer he died of. Um, he'd moved over to Spain and was doing a lot of punditry there. Um, I don't. Do, do you have many recollections of Michael no, Robinson? I've, what, I've got to honestly admit, one of the few in, in the magazine that I'm not too familiar with. Mm. But when you when you disagree with your manager, there's only one winner. <laughs> yeah. And if your manager is Malcolm Allison, I mean, you're, you're really not going to win that argument mm. and that battle because uh, he's you know I always think that a manager in football has got more power than a manager anywhere else you know you could be a head teacher of a school or a principal of a university you could own a factory you could own a business anywhere now you get good control over your, your employees because you pay them but a football manager has even more control because not only does he pay them he picks them and, and the power of selection is an enormous tool that a football manager has. If he wants you and he puts you in the team, that's great for you. But if he decides not to, so that he's got terrific hold over all his players. I've always felt that. And people say to me, you know, particularly working with the national team, how, these big stars, these millionaires, and guys like that, how do you handle them? I say, you don't, I honestly feel you don't have to handle them. You just either pick them or you don't. <laughs> they all want to be picked. And, and the power you've got is twofold. One, the power of payment, and two, the power of selection. And it's great to have that power, but if you abuse it, and you can only lose that in two ways, and 
And I don't know, some, I don't know, one the manager's book I read. Like, I, love, I love reading the autobiographies. It might have been Carlo Ancelotti, but I, one manager I read, and he quite clearly said, you've got the power of selection, the power of the payment. You can only lose it in two ways. Lose that power. One, by being incompetent. If, you, if, you, if you're incompetent, you lose the dressing Two, if you're dishonest. You cannot tell a player a lie and get away with it. And you can't say to a boy, I'll play you next week. You know, you're in the team next week. Or I'll give you a move to such and such. And you don't do it. If you do that, you're done. Because it goes round the dressing room <laughs> like wildfire. They'll talk to each other and, and your credibility is gone. I'm, I'm like digressing. And Malcolm Allison was a very high-profile, well-known manager. And he didn't need anyone giving him power, but he had it. And of course, he had the power over Mick Robinson. Did he pick him or did he not? Uh, and I, when I read the, the article and when I heard you read it there as, as well, I thought, you know, it just confirms there's only one winner here, mm. and it's the manager. Yeah, so, so moving on to the next page, and oh, it's on the same page, actually. So it's they're looking at one of the the games of the day and it's Wolves Leicester City versus Wolves and Wolves have only won one of the last 10 league games at Leicester back in 1971 in December yeah. when goals from Frank, Frank Monroe and Derek Dugan won it for them now as, yeah. a, as a spoiler that run would continue as Leicester won 2-0 at Filbert Street well I remember I remember Frank Monroe at Dundee United and he signed for Wolves he's a very good the central defender, Big Frank, and the Wolves did him. And I've got to say, it was during the war, and it didn't really work out too well. My father was signed by Wolves, and the war interrupted his career. <laughs> and he, 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 therefore, my team in England, because my dad played for Wolves at wartime. Uh, and of course, when the war finished, he was five years older and came back to Scotland and he ended up playing for a while for Patrick Thistle, but not at any great level. Now, at Wolves, I love the colour of their strip, and their, their manager was a guy called Ted Vizard. And what the managers in England used to do, would take the train up to Scotland to see a player, to look to Glasgow to look, say, for a player. And they would never go into Central Station in the train because there were guys there, if they saw a manager coming up from England, they were getting a backhander to tell the press. Mm -hmm. So what they did, and I remember my father saying, we're going to we're going to meet the Wolves manager. Oh, are we? I'm a wee boy, you know. And I said, oh. Uh, he says, he's getting off at Motherwell. <laughs> because, <laughs> and I'll pick him up there, and we're going to a game. And he, want, he wanted to be anonymous. And the kind of things they had to get up to. Nowadays, I think the same applies in airports. I'm sure in every airport, there's someone there, if he sees a manager or a player coming, He's on the phone to a press source and they'll be getting a, a wee backhander for that. So you mentioned Wolves and I have a, I have a, well, I have a feeling for Wolves because of my father uh, played there at wartime. How, how many games did he play? Not many, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I couldn't. I honestly couldn't tell you. Mm -hmm. uh, very few, I would imagine, but he was signed there and there was a different... The landscape during the war, I think, was totally different for football. And maybe I'm uh, bragging about him too much, but <laughs> he was certainly a Wolves man. And, and uh, he knew, you know, the, 
the, well, the manager came up here and, and the guys like famous players like Billy Wright, he knew I could hear him phoning Billy Wright and this would be well after the war was finished. So we're, we're now into, you know, the 50s. But I wouldn't think he was uh, of top class stand-up. But he was a, a, a dirty rascal, I think. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So we're moving on to page four. So this is Liverpool making money, and it says it's a bit much finding yourself playing reserve team football when a club has paid a third of a million pounds for you. But that's what happened to Richard Money, who Fulham collected a record, a club record of three hundred and thirty-three thousand pounds for in April. It says Richard is finding it difficult breaking into the first team, but has seen the likes of David Fairclough, Avi Con, and Sammy Lee show that it's possible. At this point, he's only managed one substitute appearance for the first team. He was on loan spell for Derby County before moving to Luton in 82, then Portsmouth and Scunthorpe. He actually appeared in the 1980 European Cup semi-final second leg against Bayern Munich after Alan Kennedy broke his wrist. Uh, Liverpool drew that game 1-1 and went through in away goals, but unfortunately he'd be an unused sub in the final after Kennedy was able to return in time. It's not not a, a name that I remember at all. No, nor do I. No, I, I will be honest with you, lads, that when I, I got the magazine, I looked through, I read, I read each article mm-hmm. quickly, but I only focused on the ones, and there are many, in mm. the, with a Scottish connection. Yeah. And that wasn't one. <laughs> Although Liverpool has a strong Scottish connection. Well, the, you know, the other one in that page, I think, was Ray Clements. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ray Clements was, of course, a very famous uh, uh, goalkeeper, and therefore, you know, you, you knew him, but uh, quite a number of the, the lads that I've uh, spoken about or written about in the magazine, I, I was unaware of, mm-hmm. to be very honest with you. Yeah. But every Scotsman I knew, <laughs> and I knew the, the high-profile English boys like Ray Clements. Yeah. So we're at the, the news desk page, which is lots of little stories, so I'm going to pick out a few of them. And the first one I'm going to pick out is... Captain Mark keeps Leicester happy. So it says that Jimmy Greaves and Peter Shelton have criticised the appointment of Leicester City goalkeeper Mark Wallington as captain, feeling that the position is too far removed from play to generally inspire the team. What's your thoughts on that, Craig, about making a goalkeeper a captain? Well, I think, I think obviously, if the goalkeeper has the personality and the authority, why not? Although I, I hear, you know, there are complaints at the moment, one or two fans at Aberdeen, for example, because I'm thinking in the Scottish game at the moment, uh, Aberdeen captain is a goalkeeper. And and I think, you know, some of the fans think, ah, he can't, it's too far removed from the play. But if he's got uh, a presence and he's got an influence and he sees the whole pitch there from... Uh, I don't see that it should be against him. I, I genuinely don't. But, uh, you know, I can think, obviously, if everything else is equal, you would want your captain to be out in the middle of the park there in a position where he's got more influence and of course he can lead by example you know the goalkeeper can lead by example by making a couple of good saves but if he's not called upon to make a couple of good saves there's no chance of him doing that so mm. you know as, as I say everything else is equal yeah I, th- I think like many like many things in football it, it only becomes a problem when things aren't going well it only becomes right. a discussion when things aren't going well. So. See, see the, the Aberdeen captain is Joe Lewis. Now, Joe Lewis is respected by everyone, not just not all the players, but by the fans. He's so popular a guy. And if Joe says, jump, they jump. You know, and he's got good authority. Uh, but there are still 
quite a number of the, tar- uh, the, the Red Army boys up there. When you say the Tartan, the Red Army, the Aberdeen fans, who think it should be an outfield player. I think it might change next season somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. <laughs> but, uh, Mr. Brown. I wouldn't rule out the goalkeeper from being the captain. Could you say who was the best captain that worked under you? Could you single somebody out, do you think? Yes, well, obviously I was very fortunate. And, and, and I'll, I'll surprise you maybe, but I think a wonderful captain I had when I was manager at Preston, a guy called Chris Lachetti. He's now assistant manager of Motherwell. Right. He, was a, he was a colossus as a captain, but that's been very unfair to the Scottish international team because we had uh, Gary McAllister as a captain, hugely influential. Yeah. And we had Colin Henry, who, you know, he was uh, outstanding as a, as a captain. I was very fortunate that these guys were about and available to captain the team. And, you know, I was assistant manager of Scotland and uh, Graham Souness was the captain uh, as well for a time with with the uh, and Willie Miller, you know, I'm just trying to think when I was the assistant. So depending of who was playing at the time, but you know, these guys were all the, the interesting thing of an international team is that most of them or many of them are captains of their club team. Yeah. <laughs> so you get a job when you're picking your team and you're deciding on the bench. You're going to put a club captain, you know, as a substitute for the international team because he's not getting uh, in the team. But I think Scotland have been lucky. They've had influential leaders as captains. And I think, you know, Willie Miller was a very influential guy. And so you, you, you can imagine, you can hear Graham Souness as a pundit, outstanding pundit. So he would be, uh, you know, a captain to be respected as well. And, you know, going further back, uh, when Celtic were so successful, they had Billy McNeil. And I don't think there's been a better captain. And at the same time, Rangers had a wonderful one, John Gregg. And these, these guys, you know, they're legends at the clubs and uh, battling against them there at Aberdeen was Willie Miller <laughs> doing very well against them under the leadership of Sir Alec. But, you know, it's, I, I don't know. There's not a formula. You know, you just get a gut feeling that this guy is so respected in the dressing room and on the pitch is ideal material, captain material. So, so you're saying there about the fact that most players in the international setup would probably be captains. So do you think possibly that the role isn't as important at international level as it maybe is at club level? Well, I don't I don't think it's all that important because really the coach is in charge. Hmm. The, the coach is the main man in terms of uh, what happens on the pitch. You know, I, I think it, in maybe the other sport, in rugby, the captain seems to have more say in a rugby, in a game of rugby. He can, he can make changes and do things... Whereas I don't think there's a captain who, the captain certainly out there motivates and talks to them out there. In my experience is that the manager's in charge and the manager makes the substitutions, makes the changes, uh, not the captain. So the captain is really a leader. In that. You know, the captain becomes quite powerful and quite important. But I think sometimes his influence is overstated because the key person in the, in the football club is the manager. And he's the one that determines what happens. And I think, you know, I'm actually going through, I think, to be fair, at Manchester United, my colleague, Archie Knox, says they had the most wonderful captain there at Manchester United, Brian Robson, who was in charge of the whole operation there when when Manchester United under Sir Alec were doing so well. And I, I come up to Glasgow and I look at the two clubs and I mentioned the two main captains there, you know, uh, 
Greg and and uh, Billy McNeil. So you know it's uh, it'd be good to be the captain, but I think you've got to be respected by everyone in the dressing room, and you don't need to be raising your voice and shouting at them. You just have to tell them, say to them once, and that's it. And the the young players in particular perhaps need an arm around them when they're coming into the team. A good captain will do that. McAllister, for example, outstanding at that. Then we had David Weir as captain, big super guy uh, from uh, Everton. Uh, so, you know, I'm trying to think of others. And I'm sure over the years there's been many. But, you know, I go back to Wolverhampton. I remember the captain was Billy Wright. And mm-hmm. he was England captain as well. And he was so highly respected. Yeah. Okay, so the next one I'm going to look at in these two pages is Staggering Walk. So this is about John Walk, and it says, John Walk could easily have been on the receiving end of the 5-1 thrashing of Aristolonica in the UEFA Cup if he'd extended his holiday last year. While on holiday near Salonica, he was offered terms by the club, which he refused. He says, two men introduced themselves as being from Aris, and straight away they asked me if I'd be interested in playing for them. I explained that it was under contract with Ipswich Town. So actually, John actually scored four of those five goals and three of them were penalties. So he certainly had a a bit of an impact on that game, if nothing else. (laughs) I think so. I think think the magazine said his mother-in-law would have something to say. (laughs) (laughs) But the the team Aris, I know it well. I was over there and uh, I did a week's training with the Aris team and they were so enthusiastic. This was while I was working with the SFA, Scottish team. I went over to spy over there, and uh, Andy Roxburgh knew the, the manager of Aris, uh, and uh, he said he told them I was coming. They said, "Well, you can you can take some training sessions." <laughs> so I remember the, the the big Greek guy playing, and uh, I was getting on to him. I was I was giving them some Scottish words to try and encourage him, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know. <laughs> to get the lead out of certain parties of anatomy to get moving. <laughs> and uh, and they, were, they says, I, 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 I come to enjoy myself. <laughs> I come to enjoy myself at the training. I come not to hard work. I I do my work. They were part-time players, semi-pro. Right. They, they worked the, the most most uh, mornings and they trained in the afternoon. So I was getting a big boy to, to train. He wasn't a... I'm trying to remember his name, but maybe I shouldn't say it. But uh, I know the club very well, and uh, uh, it was a super football club and a nice environment. And I'm quite sure John Watt would have loved it there if he'd been playing out there. Uh, I was there; at, he gave a wonderful talk when he was introduced into the Scottish football SFA Hall of Hate Hall of Fame. Uh, he spoke very, very well. Dougie Donnelly, the interviewer. Uh, is very good at that and gets the best out of these guys. But John Watt went down a bomb, told a few stories about Liverpool, told a few stories about Scotland. And uh, like many of the good players, they've all got a good sense of humour and they can make a joke and they don't take themselves too seriously. That's what I like. You know, you don't... Uh, I always found that the bigger the star, the more humble he is. You know, you, 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 people would say to me, it must be hard to handle these big, these big names in the dressing room. You know, and I found, you know, guys like, I was lucky, I was the assistant manager when, when Ken Dalgleish was still in the dressing room playing for Scotland and and uh, Graham Souness was playing and Gordon Strachan and Willie Miller and Alec McLeish. And I was the assistant manager and whatever you tell them to do, they do. And there's no, people think, well, they might be hard to handle. But I think they are stars because they are responsive and they've done throughout their career what they've been asked to do and they've done it exceptionally well. 
and they expect, they like organisation, they like discipline, they like to be told. They don't like to be left airy-fairy. They, they want to be told exactly what you want and they respect that. So I found it a dream to work with these guys. I'm not as far back as uh, the ones before it. You know, the Archie Gemmell was just before me with the Scottish team. Uh, I started in 1986 as the assistant with the Scottish team uh, at the World Cup in Mexico. And that was a very, very, very good uh, squad that Sir Alec had there. But I've got to say to you guys that Scotland, and my, well, I was lucky, I've been at three World Cups with Scotland on the staff. And on every occasion, our, our best player couldn't go. And people never never mention this, and it's quite interesting. They all say, ah, oh, you got to the World Cup, but you didn't get out of the group, you didn't qualify. And I'll say, well, look, we lost our best player. Who was the best player in, when Alec Ferguson took the team to, to Mexico? The best player was Kenny Dalglish. Kenny was injured and didn't go. And Alan Hansen didn't go either. So the two Liverpool boys didn't go, so we were short. And there's no way we wouldn't have beaten Uruguay in that last game with Alec Ferguson in charge if, if Dalglish had been there. Then the next World Cup were in Italy in 1990. And the best player in Scotland that season was Davy Cooper, the winger at Rangers. And he got injured and he couldn't go to the World Cup. And obviously another one that didn't go was John Robertson, Hart's striker. We Robo, both were injured. And then when I got the job and I had the team going to France in the World Cup in 98, arguably again, our best player got injured just before it, Gary McAllister. So when you think, we went to three World Cups without Dalglish, Cooper and McAllister. Now, I think, now one man doesn't make a team, but if these guys had been in the team and playing in the games, I'm quite sure we would have qualified at least one or maybe two of the, the occasions because we didn't, we've not got out the group stages yet when we get to a World Cup. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully we'll do it now with Stevie Clark in the European Championship coming up soon. But I think we've got to be aware that, you know, a, a country like England with the resources they've got, they can lose a player, a big player, and bring in another big player. Yeah. We can't lose a guy like McAllister and replace him easily. We can't, we definitely can't lose Dalglish and replace him easily. <laughs> no way. Could you replace Kenny Dalglish? So that's my excuse, guys. <laughs> <laughs> None needed. None needed. Now, this next one, next one I'm going to look at, I absolutely love. So, this is a Broth's cricket score. <laughs> so, I'll go through this and then we can have a wee chat about it. It says, Most fans are aware of the highest score ever in a senior match between a Broth and Bonacord, where a Broth won 36 0 in the Scottish Cup in 1885. But do you really know the real story? She asks. They say that Bon Accord were in fact the Orion Cricket Club of Aberdeen and they received an invitation from the Scottish FA to take part in the competition. They changed their name to Bon Accord as they thought it sounded better. Um, after that, after they'd been slaughtered, the embarrassed SFA secretary apologised and admitted the invite should have been sent to the Orion Football Club. Now, there's some dispute to this version of the story and it's suggested that Bon Accord simply arrived without a full complement of players or indeed even a full proper football strip. Other stories suggest that the players for Bon Accord also simply down tools and let a broth keep scoring. There's tales that tell that the broth keeper actually put an umbrella up during the game to shelter from the driving rain, which if, if we know um, a broth's park, then that's actually quite believable. Uh, in another article in the Marshall Cavendish Book of Football from 1972, the keeper for Bon Accord was named as Andrew Lorney. 
and he was quoted as saying, it wasn't my fault. Now, <laughs> apparently the, the Bon Accord keeper was injured the night before the game and Lorne volunteered to step in, something he would love to regret. Uh, John Petrie, outside right for a broth, scored 13 goals. And <laughs> the, 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 as great as all this is, possibly the best part of the story was on the same day in the Scottish Cup, Dundee Harp beat Aberdeen Rovers 35-0. Now, other stories suggest that they actually won 37-0, but the referee said it was only 35. And when Harp found out about their broth score, they actually petitioned the referee to put in a 37-0 victory instead, which he obviously didn't didn't do. So whatever the truth, the broth versus Bon Accord game has gone down in legend, and the Dundee Harp versus Aberdeen hasn't. And it just shows you how what a thin line it is for these sort of things. But I, I just yeah, love but, everything about it. You know, I read that. Well, of course, you know, I, I live in Aberdeen now, and uh, Bon Accord's a, a very well-known uh, name. You know, mm. there's a Bon Accord, uh, everything in Aberdeen. <laughs> and then there was a Bon Accord uh, team. Well, they, they were called Bon Accord, but, of course, one of the main shopping malls is the Bon Accord Centre. So... Uh, it's <laughs> it's a bit of a, a football result, that so a farcical game, obviously. So I really don't <laughs> I don't know any more about it. But I joke with the present manager of both, who's a real character, Dick Campbell. Yeah, yeah. I said that you've a long way to go until you try and get the into the history book at Tarbroth because you say win more than 36 nothing <laughs> tickets. <laughs> You're naming the history of Tarbroth football club. But Dick's uh, proudly says to me, we're the best part-time team in Scotland. So they are. It's a lovely football club and a, a nice environment there. If the wind's not blowing, <laughs> if the wind's blowing, it comes over. The, the waves are actually just coming over the, the, the wall uh, from the North Sea into the stadium there at Arbroath. But everything at Arbroath is good, nice club, good people. And at the moment, they're not a bad team. They're, they're semi-pro team as they call them in England, we say part-time in Scotland. Yeah. I'm sure he's probably pretty confident about beating a team 37-0 the way the way he works in his head. So, you know, if there's <laughs> one man to do it, it'll, it'll be him. <laughs> but um, moving on to the next one. So this is Bruce is back. It's about Bruce Riot is back in England in search of a club after playing with Seattle Sounders in the summer. He played 48 games at Sounders, then moved to Torquay where he played until 1984 before retiring. And he played 71 games there. Well, I, I, I know Bruce, and I remember him being the manager at uh, Arsenal. He, he was one of the, the managers that uh, uh, Delia Smith, she, she, she chooses carefully, I think, but uh, he was a manager at uh, Norwich. And you don't get a job at Norwich unless you're a capable guy and a likeable guy. Uh, you've got to be a nice fella. <laughs> and uh, so he was, he was a manager at Norwich with uh, Delia in charge of the club. So, and obviously a wonderful player for Scotland when he played. Yeah. Okay, um, we'll move on to this next one, which is about Birmingham fine players. So it says, Archie Gemmell, Mick Page and Alan Kirbisley of Birmingham City have been given the power to fine any player who gets into hot water with referees. Each fine is £2, and if they reach 20 points and they are due for suspension, then they will fork out £80. Anyone sent off is fined £100 plus £48 for the 12 points they'd collect. And as it always seems to be with these things, the fine money goes into a pool that will be used for a slap-up party in the summer. It's a lot of money, isn't it? It is. At that time, a real, mm. a real amount of money, that. Yeah, I think that's quite common. I know many clubs in 
one or two of the clubs that I've worked with, uh, if a player is fined, uh, the, the agreement was half goes into the to the Christmas the Christmas uh, night out, and the other half goes to charity. Uh, and I think that's up to the captain. There, you mentioned captain earlier. That's where your captain comes in. He'll maybe have a small player committee, and they'll decide what they're doing with the money, <laughs> and they'll also determine the level of fines. You know how much. Uh, goes in here and much goes in there but nowadays with the salaries they're getting you know a 500 pound fine or a thousand pound fine is nothing uh, to these guys who are making fortunes uh, in the Premier League in particular but you know when I worked in England you know if if you were I, I think the lads told me that uh, at uh, Derby County or Nottingham Forest I think it was not, I knew the Nottingham boys Scottish boys down there they said if you gave a square pass in training you were fined 25 pounds because Clough wouldn't allow you to have a square pass. Hmm. And because he explained it, he says, if it's, if it's a square pass and it's intercepted, both of you are beaten. If it goes forward and it's intercepted, the guy that passed it forward can recover. If it goes back and it's intercepted, the guy that was to receive it can recover. But if it's a square pass, you know, th- small things like that, and, and that money would go into the kitty, and the kitty would be used according to the way the small uh, players committee decided. So uh, I, think, and I think it's quite right that if a player is sent off for stupidity for, for you know mouthing at the referee for example or being disrespectful uh, quite right to hammer him with a fine now Archie uh, Scotland skipper Archie Gemmell Archie of course we loved him in Scotland because of the wonderful goal particularly mm-hmm. against uh, the Netherlands he scored <laughs> when he, he jumped over a couple of players and slotted it mm-hmm. uh, but and Archie's son Scott Gemmell is now the coach of the Scotland under 21 team and he is, he played for me when I had done the 21 team of Scotland and came with the national team as well. Uh, he played in the national team also, Scott, and that's Archie's son. Uh, and uh, of course, he's a super player and a nice guy. So I, I, I know Alan Curbridge just briefly. I don't know Mick Page at all, unfortunately. But when I was down in England, I met Alan Curbridge, very highly regarded. He was at Charlton and He's in the LMA, League Managers Association, which is a very powerful organisation, uh, the union of the managers in England. And Alan Curbish is a main man in that. So your uh, three senior professionals at Birmingham City, obviously two of them I know, top men, and Mick Page, I'm sure, the same. Craig, I was going to ask you, during your, your playing career, how sort of, uh, early did you start thinking about coaching? Well, what happened when I was playing football? Uh, well, I, I was a PE teacher because I, when I was when I signed it to, to Glasgow Rangers, I was a student, and I wasn't a full time footballer, but I was a full time footballer on the student holidays, which is you probably are aware. You, you know, you're you're off on holiday until the end of September, right? Uh, and and therefore, you know, you 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 get you're full time at that time. But then I went to I got transferred to Dundee. And I was still a part-time player for a while at Dundee, but by that time I had been a student in, in my last year uh, in teaching. Well, I, when I finished that, I was full-time football and we were encouraged to go to the coaching course. Right. And the manager encouraged us as well. Uh, the, not only did the manager encourage us when I had the job, as a, I can't remember if someone came from the SFA, but anyway, it was popular to go on the course uh, to because it was a social event. <laughs> and we went down to Largs and we had a great fortnight down there. Uh, we had the weekend off in between. We had a week, a weekend and a week. And the, all the, the players at Dundee, when I was there, the, the international players, the main players, 
they would go to coaching course. So I went when I was in my early 20s. So I, I got my A license when I, when I was 26 or 7, which was early. And now there's a, 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 an award beyond that called the Pro Licence. Right. So uh, we were encouraged to go because it was good pre-season training for us. One of the coaches at Larks, and he was very well regarded. And he would send the young players from his Aberdeen team, you know, guys like Martin Buchan and Joe Harper. Yeah. They came down to Largs as runners. They weren't on the coach. They were actually, we demonstrated using them. We were asked to, to do a coaching session. We would get the young players out, Bobby Clark, the goalie, and, and we would work with the, the professional players. So that's, that put me into coaching early. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed it and enjoyed the social element <laughs> when you're doing the coaching course. Uh, so and I, I finished a wee bit early playing because my knee was uh, five knee operations in the course of my career. And I got transferred from Dundee to Falkirk. And uh, uh, I was a part-time player then. I went full-time teaching in part-time football. And uh, Falkirk were in the Premier League. Well, it was only two leagues, first and second division. It was the first division. And they were in relegation trouble. So they made a couple of signings. And, uh, you know, we managed to escape relegation uh, and keep stay, stay in the league. But the next year, again, I was limping along in one leg and I had to give up playing early. The, the surgeon said, you're going to be a cripple the rest of your life if you don't stop playing this game. And I'll go back, uh, Tom, and I don't want it highlighted, but when I was at Rangers and I got my injury at Rangers, they hadn't a qualified physiotherapist. Mm-hmm. Would you believe a club, Glasgow Rangers Football Club, and I've got photographs. It was a good thing they did at Christmas time. They gave you a, a framed team photo every year they're there. And that's a memento and all the and all players are named. So I've still got them. And, and the, if you can't remember who played with you, the, these photos are a terrific reminder. But uh, the, the team the team group photograph had you all in there, had all the names there. But the staff, they had only two. They, they had a trainer, David Kinnear, who's a radio and, and a reserve team coach and a manager. Now, when you look at the staff in a football club now, it's incredible. You, you, you'll have at least at least 10 staff you, you, because you'll have a physio, maybe two physios, you'll have a masseur, you'll have an analyst, you'll have a sports scientist, you'll have a, a couple of doctors. I mean, we, we used to go to the World Cup when I was with the SFA. We'd go to the World Cup and the total staff, well, I, well, I was invited by Alec to go to, Sir Alec, to go to Mexico. And there was three coaches. There was Alec, Walter Smith, Archie Knox and myself. And then they had a, they had a kit man who was also a physio, Hugh Allen, who did. So, so there was a three of us, four of us rather, and they didn't have a specialist at that time. They later had a goalkeeping coach. And... A doctor and a physio. That was your lot. Dr. Stuart Hillis was, was there for... Yes, Professor Hillis, right? Yeah. He taught me something. He taught, he taught me a lot, but he taught me one thing. He, he sadly passed away, Professor Hillis. Yeah. But I'll tell you how... He phoned me one... He taught me something quite important. He phoned me one Saturday night. He says, eh, I just wanted to thank you, Craig. I said, what are you thanking me for? He says, I heard your interview after the game. And uh, I said, ah, well, why, why are you thanking me? He says, you mentioned me. I said, well, why? He said, well, you mentioned me by name. Wait, hear this. He says, I've been a club doctor for years. And I listened to the manager's interview about injuries. And he'll say, the doc will have a look at him. Right? Now, he said, you said, Professor Stuart Hillis, the, the SFA doctor, will look. He said, you mentioned me by name. You know, and I, I thought, <laughs> why not? Now, it, 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 it made me realise how important it is to acknowledge your colleagues by name. Don't say my assistant. And I hate that. I always say my colleague. I never say Archie Knox, my assistant. 
I'll say my colleague, because you, you kind of put them down if you say assistant. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a demeaning term, I feel. Now, the doctor, your, your Professor Hillis, the foremost cardiologist in Scotland, is phoning me, thanking me, or giving them a name check on an interview. And I thought, well, I've learned something. And thereafter, if I was talking about the, the, the groundsman, and, and, and Alec Ferguson was always very good at that, Alec would say, oh, they passed the ball well today, but he says, hey, Willie, Willie Ferguson, the groundsman, had the pitch in great order. You know, name the guy that does, name the, name the doctor, name the physio who's treating him and give credit. And, you know, a name check is, is well, I'm not saying it's as good as money, but it's, it's, it's a, a, you know, the, the people like, and I, I didn't quite realise it until here's a professor thanking me for getting his name in the radio. So, yeah, sorry, I told I distracted you. You mentioned no, not at all. Do you, do you know? Did you know Stuart Hillis? Do you know? The... No, well, I, I, both Andy and I are Clyde Bank supporters. Uh, oh, you're so bankies, aye. I, I, I was aware of the kind of work he did for Clyde Banks. I don't think clubs really had team doctors at the time, and I, and I was aware that um, that he'd done a lot of kind of pioneering yeah. kind of stuff at, at Clyde yeah. Bank that's sort of running the mill now. Oh yeah, I give you your best player ever. Jerry McCabe. It's not David Cooper, it's Jerry McCabe. Jerry McCabe, that's what I was going to come to. He was my favourite player when I started going to work Clayback. Well, I'll tell you that I have never ever, in all my time in management, I've never ever had a check as as big as I got. (laughs) Jack Steedman came down to Lars, who had a course on, and he was signing McCabe. And how much do you want for Jerry McCabe? I says, well, as much as you're going to offer. And and I, I thought, well, Jack Steedman was a shrewd man. He said, well, we'll offer you 45,000. I said, no, 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 you'll never get there. I want 70. <laughs> anyway, we, we ended up on a call, on the phone, and I had the authority from the chairman. I mean, Clyde needed the money. And he says, get what you can get. So I got 60,000, and I'll never forget this. He came he came down to Largs, and he gave me a cheque to Clyde Football Club for 60,000. I've never seen as big a check ever. <laughs> <laughs> and it was Jack Steedman, and it was from McCabe. Then, you know what he said to me, hey, Tom, and this is, the older listeners would appreciate this, he said, that was the best signing I ever made because I sold three strikers for over 100,000 and they, they get the goal tally because the passes they got from McCabe were, were certainties yeah. for goals. And he said, first one I sold was Mike Larnock, over 100,000. Then I sold Tommy Coyne, over 100,000. Then I sold Bobby Williamson, yeah. over 100,000. Now, to go from a club like Clyde Bank and get 100,000 plus for a, for a striker, and Jack Steedman was convinced that the reason they got that money was the passes these guys got from Jerry McCabe. Yeah, yeah he was and a like, terrific player, Jerry McCabe, just the way he yeah. took on defenders. He was just running at defenders all day long. Uh-huh. He was player of the year in that league two or three years in a row. He was player yeah. of the year in that league with Clyde. Yeah. And we were a bad team. You know, <laughs> not, well, we weren't as good a team as Clyde Bank, you know, because you had, you had, uh, you know, I love Jim Fallon and guys like that. I knew Jim was a great physio with SFA. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they knew a lot of the Clyde, Clyde Bank players, big galley, the goalkeeper, Gallica. So, yeah. um, that's, we, that's Andy's hero you're talking about there, Jim Gallica. Jim Gallica's my, my hero. That's my ultimate footballing hero. Is he? Yeah. Really? The goalie? Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, brilliant. Mm. I'm I'm so glad to be talking to two Bankies fans. <laughs> yeah. mm. uh, what's what's happened to them now? Are they in the junior grade? Yeah, well, we're in the, the new uh, West of Scotland Football League, so we're, we're a senior club again because we're in that new West of Scotland oh, setup, uh-huh. uh, and we're we're applying for the license 
so uh, I think it's this week they find out whether they're getting the license, and then we'll get we can get oh. back into the the big Scottish Cup again. Oh, that's that's great. Well, I, I had a, a great affection for Clyde Bank Football Club, and part of the reason was Stuart Hillis, because he worked for the SFA and he was a real gentleman. And and Andy Roxburgh, of course, was related course, yeah. to the Seedmans. Yeah. And uh, therefore, I was quite early in my time with the SFA introduced to the Seedman family. You know, <laughs> and I, I'm saying I'm fed up beating you with Clyde. You know. And he was, uh, <laughs> Tell us when you ever beat us. <laughs> I did, Craig. I did notice in your book that you mentioned that there was a season that you beat Clyde Bank twice, even though we finished in second position. So, thank oh, you for I, that mention. Yeah. Did I, did I say that? <laughs> I, I, don't know. I can't. I can't remember. But I, I, I great affection for the Bankies and, of course, for the Steedmans and particularly for Jerry McCabe. And of course, I was at Motherwell as the assistant manager, uh, and as the manager later, and uh, we had David Cooper. Mm. And uh, Davy, Davy was an uh, unbelievable uh, football player, and of course at Clyde Bank he was just unstoppable. Uh, he's probably your best ever player, was he, Davy? Yeah, oh, absolutely. He's still regarded Sli- as slightly nice. better than Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell him that. I'll tell him. I talked to a couple of Bankies fans and said that Cooper was better than you. Well, well, well Jerry should have played at a higher level. He really should have okay. got a transfer to a bigger team. He, he was a marvellous player for Clyde and helped us win the championship that time. Well, the, the other player at your time at Clyde I was going to ask you about was Pat Nevin. Yes. Uh, could you, I mean, I, I imagine you, you could see just the, the talent in him even as a young a young boy. Yes, she, uh, she's another real one. She, McCabe gets sacked by Hibs. Me, Pat, gets sacked by Celtic. But the one the one that I had before him my first year at Clyde was probably a big, well, not probably, definitely a bigger name than Pat, was Steve Archibald. Mm. And we sold him to uh, Aberdeen, to Billy McNeil. And then Billy sold him to uh, Tottenham for 800,000. We get 25,000, <laughs> 800,000. And then he went for over a million to Barcelona. So we Pat was a very, very outstanding player, but he wasn't, his, his transfer fee was... Uh, 95,000 from Clyde to Chelsea. And he was the European Youth Player of the Year. Scotland won the under-18 European Championship. Uh, in Finland, they beat Czechoslovakia yeah. in the final. And Pat got the man of the match. And he was the best, he got the award, the best youth player in Europe. So they stole him from 95,000 Chelsea. And away he went. And his book's just coming out. It says right, yeah. And you, you capped him. You capped him for Scotland as well. I think you gave him yes, his last yeah. cap for Scotland. Came uh, full circle. We picked, we picked him for the under twenty ones and for the national right. team. Uh, so uh, we Pat was a good. Um, uh, Pat was a very good, uh, unbelievable player in the in the league we were in. You know, your Clyde Bankies couldn't get near him. No, I know. I, I remember <laughs> watching him play in, in those in those days. Yeah, and he was a terrific player. I've always liked. Always liked yeah. him as a player. Uh, he was well read. I, I was. I sold quite a lot. Of, well, I had to sell one every year. The, the other one that, in, that interestingly we sold was Ian Ferguson, and they went to St. Mirren for sixty thousand, and they sold them to Rangers for a million. And there was no add-ons in those days. Mm. You know, you get a top-up now. He didn't get it in, in those days, so we didn't get anything extra for Archibald. Two big moves. We didn't get anything extra for Pat Nevin. Uh, and um, another one we sold was Joe Ward. We sold Joe Ward to Aston Villa, and we didn't get any add-on. He was a ninety thousand, and we sold the boy Tommy McQueen to Aberdeen. So, 
I mean, while at Clyde, Steve Archibald was still playing. He was playing a midfield role, was it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're 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 clued in. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was Billy. He went. He went, he went to Aberdeen, and, and it was it was Billy McNeil that uh, was the Clyde manager before Clyde. He went to Aberdeen, and he took him as a midfield player for twenty five thousand. And he said, and this, I'll never forget his word. He said, if he doesn't make it in midfield, I'll put him back as a sweeper and replace <laughs> Willie Miller. That's what he said. <laughs> but but in, what happened in a practice match up there, he put him up front in a, in a, in a training game and he played, he played against McLeish and Miller and scored three goals. Mm. And they looked at each other, the, the, the trainer with the reserve, Teddy Scott, and uh, Teddy Scott looked at, uh, at Big Billy and said, look, why don't we try Archibald in the first team up front? Which, it was just a try, and, and yeah. he was outstanding. It's incredible. So that's what happened. Uh, he was a midfield player at Clyde, mm. and, and he was a very good midfield player. And he was he was rough. You know, he got tackles, and I like I like a midfield player that get the tackles in. <laughs> So we'll move on a few pages in the magazine. Um, there, there's a few. There was an article there actually that we we didn't cover. Well, we sort of did. It was about Steve Archibald, and they said that basically his cost to Spurs was four times what their entire sixty-one League and Cup double team would have cost, which I don't think really is a is a fair comparison you can do. You know, eight hundred thousand pound, eight hundred fifty thousand pound to compare yeah. that to something from the sixties. I don't think that was a particularly... Um, but I don't know if you noticed in this... So this is a briefly section, little snippets, but there was something about David Bowman. So it says, Hearts fans are enjoying a like father, like son situation this season. Yeah. The reason is 16-year-old David Bowman, a midfield player who's making a big impression since his introduction to the first team. David's mm -hmm. father, Andy Bowman, was one of the stars in the Hearts side in the 60s. Now, I know, I know you have a certain affinity with a player from Hearts who would have been around about that time. Is he still your favourite player, Dave Mackay? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, well, as a boy, he was my favourite player. Hmm. And, you know, he, he played for, I think he was the, he was the fans' favourite at three different clubs, and that takes a bit of doing. Hmm. At uh, Hearts and at Tottenham and at Derby County. Now, you don't get a better accolade than that than being uh, the man that uh, is the fans' favourite at each of these clubs, and that's just the style of play. Had he was he was so aggressive and so talented that uh, and he was. My father used to take me to see him. He didn't take me to see Hearts. He took me to see Dave Mackay. Mm -hmm. If they were in the west of Scotland, you know, we'll, we'll, we lived in Hamilton, so we'll take you to over to Motherwell to see uh, Mackay. They were Airdrie were in the league at the time. We'll go to Airdrie and we'll see. We'll go to Celtic. We'll see Mackay. We're not we're not going to see Hearts. We're mm -hmm. going to see Dave Mackay. Now watch everything he does. See what you can learn. You know, and I don't know what I learned, but I, what I did see was a guy who had terrific ability, but great enthusiasm and great determination and no little skill. He was captain of hearts. And when we came at Motherwell, he ran out with the ball. In those days, they went out. Nowadays, they walk out kind of hand in hand. But in, in those days, the teams went out separately. And I remember at third part watching them coming out, and he, he was a captain. And he ran with the ball in his hand to the centre circle, right? And the players ran out as well into their half of the park and they were doing some exercise. And he threw the ball up in the air and he drop kicked it with his heel. He back heeled it from the centre circle right into the goal. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe that. He threw it up there high. And, and, he, and on the draw, it was a half volley backwards. Not, it was hard to do. Ask a player to do that facing forwards. And it's quite an achievement to get it into the goal from the halfway line. 
well, he backheeled it into the goal. And that was no wonder he was my hero. I, uh, I know now where your knee injury problems came from. It was you trying that, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, I never said that. I couldn't <laughs> even begin to do yeah. that. <laughs> but, you uh, know, uh, that was Davy Mackay. But a terrific enthusiasm, terrific uh, quality player. Uh, and, you know, down in, in Derby, they love him. And at Tottenham, they love him. And they loved him at Hearts as well. Yeah. So I've, I've jumped on a few pages here to... There was... Um, as, as you'll be aware, aware of, shoot used to do these um, booklet things that you could you could pull out and add to um, other pages, and you would basically fold them over and, and do a little booklet. So we'll look at some of the ones from here, and the one I'm look, going to look at is Bobby Murdoch. So yes. it, it does say that he was destined, you know, sort of talking about Steve Archibald, how he was a midfielder and moved position. It did say that he was destined to be a forward when first signed, but it was when he moved to right half in 64-65 that he really developed into a top-class player. What's your what's your, your memories of Bobby? My memories are uh, embarrassment. Right. <laughs> because when I played against him, he was too good. <laughs> uh, well, I remember, uh, actually, the year, the year we won the league at Dundee, uh, we came down to play Celtic, and it was the old jungle that was there, and... Uh, uh, it was Bobby Lennox's first game for Celtic. Murdoch was already in the team. And it was Bobby Lennox's first ever game. And uh, our manager, Shankly, said to me, he knew everything about football and everything about the history of players. And he says, uh, he would say to me, Chris Craig, see this wee guy you're playing against today? He tossed up with a sparrow for legs and the sparrow won. <laughs> this is Bobby Lennox. He says, he says, I want you to take him for the knee down. And he says, can you count? I said, yes, boss. That was a crawler. Yes, boss. What's one for 11? This is 10. Get them to 10 as quick as possible. <laughs> now, honestly, these were the, the instructions, you know, that yeah. it, it was half joking, whole earnest, you know, and and, uh, and I'm, I'm across, I'm nodding my head, right, boss, okay, boss. Well, I couldn't get near Lennox, obviously, to, to, to nail him. He was very elusive, but I managed to get him with my elbow in his face and smashed his nose. And the blood, Bobby, he, he writes about it in his book, you know, the. the and I see him sometimes in Ayrshire, of course, and he jokes with me, you're a dirty so-and-so, you did my nose in. <laughs> and, and in those days, you didn't take the jersey off. Yeah. You know, they're very, they're hyper-conscientious now about uh, hygiene and yeah, health. Yeah. The blood stayed on it the whole game. And, and that was me making my mark. And Shankly said, ah, well done, son. You know, that's, <laughs> that's you know. <laughs> but <laughs> but the, in the other side of the pitch, or just behind Lennox, uh, was uh, Murdoch, Bobby Murdoch, who was unbelievably good. You know, I think they'd got, I'm not sure, I think he came from Canvas Lane, because in that team that eventually was the Lisbon Lions team, this was, this was a few years before the Lisbon Lions, this was four years before they won the European Cup, that uh, of that team that played the Lisbon Lions team, people don't ever remember this, 10 of the 11 played junior football. Yeah, that's quite amazing. Mm-hmm. And people say to me, you know, what What do you think? Was, why, why are we not as good as we used to be? And when, you know, we're having all these projects, Project Brave and things like this to try and improve the quality of football. I said, why don't they do what they did before? You played with your school, you played with a youth team maybe, and, and in Glasgow they can drum chapel or, or, or Garkosh. They were the popular teams, uh, the bigger teams. You play with you and, and then you sign for a senior club and they put you out junior and you'd have a provisional signing and you play for a year with the men in the junior grade. Now the whole Lisbon Lions team, in fact, I'm, I'm digressing here, but Stevie Chalmers, who scored the famous goal to win 
the European Cup. Stevie Chalmers didn't go to Celtic till he was 23 from Ashfield Juniors. <laughs> you know? Now, Bobby, Leonard, hey, Bobby Murdoch, you mentioned there, I'm sure it was Cumbersign Rangers he came from. So, so Bobby Murdoch is one of the examples of the proper, I thought, a very good progress from school to a boys team, a youth team. And then, but they were, now they, they would all be going to Celtic Boys Club rather than uh, just playing with a local boys club. Mm. And uh, so Murdoch was fantastic uh, midfield player. You know, I think he was a pre, because he kind of Tommy Doherty type player. Not unlike the one that we just mentioned, not not unlike Dave Mackay, Bobby. Class, absolute uh, silky class player. Terrific passer of the ball, terrific control of the ball. You know, made every attribute that you would want in a midfield player. I think, I think he was um, similarly... He's held in high esteem at is it, uh, Middlesbrough when he moved there and just yes. gave him a new lease of life as well. And, right, you know, right. Middlesbrough fans really, you know, say well, great things about him. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, I knew that team just because I grew up with most of them. And I tell you, you've never met a more modest group of guys. The only one that wasn't modest, but it was jocularly funny, was Bertie Ald. Hmm. <laughs> you know, Bertie would be boasting about it. You know, he was, he would. He would get on his neck and say, see that? I don't need to go on a coaching course and bring out a league championship medal. Hang around his neck. I'll get one of them. I'll get, five. I'll get more than one of them. He said, I, didn't, I didn't need to go uh, to, to a fancy coaching course to get, to get that. You know, he was a wee bit, he was a bit dismissive of uh, coaching. But Bertie, Bertie was con- confident, cocky, but not, there's not a big-headed one in that team. Hmm. And, and I got to know them all just through playing against them and meeting them socially and what have you. Starting with the captain, Billy. And Billy McNeil, you couldn't get a more humble guy. Confident, but humble. Hmm. And Tommy Gemmell played with the same junior team as I played for, slightly different time at Colt Ness United. And uh, he's another example of going junior. And then from there to uh, Celtic and, and, and to be a Lisbon Lion. So they were all, in, and Bobby Lennox was our dear recreation from Ayrshire. Uh, so I, there's a lesson there. I keep saying to the, why are we getting, why are we bothered? Why don't we put the boys out to junior football to get some experience, to get toughened up a wee bit? And even the Aberdeen boys, the, the Willie Miller, Willie, Willie came up to Aberdeen and put them to Peterhead for mm. a season to toughen them up. And Alec McLeish played in, uh, I think he played in Ayrshire juniors. Mm. Jim, you know. Jim Layton, was it? Was it? Devonville, he went to or something. Like I that. went to Devonville, but before that, he was down at Nielsen. No, it was Nielsen, one of the junior teams in, in Ayrshire mm. for a season there. And if you, if you mentioned Jim Layton, Jim Layton is the most underrated and understated player because Jim Layton has ninety-one cards for Scotland, and you know that he's got forty-two clean sheets mm. for Scotland. Now that's incredible. So that what we're saying is, every second game for Scotland, he didn't lose a goal. And 42, might be 45, but it's over 40. I'm saying 42 in case I get it wrong at 45. But, but I've said 45 in the past. But, but he had 91 caps and every second game. It, it was largely due to Jim Layton. We qualified for the Euro 96 tournament. And when I had a team and we qualified for the World Cup 98 tournament. And in each of these qualification campaigns, we played 10 games. And in 10 games for Euro 96, we lost three goals in 10 games. In 10 games for the World Cup 98, to get to France, we lost three goals. Now, that is, you know, that, that tells you the, the, the defence was superb and the goalkeeping was unbelievable. It was usually, sometimes it was Gorham, 
Yeah, it was later. But, we, but, we we actually had uh, David Priest, the ex Aberdeen keeper. We had him on the other week, and we we talked about Jim Layton um, because I, I I've said in the past that I will fight Jim Layton's corner any day of the week. Oh, because oh. because a lot of people judge him and base on basically on a short spell with Man United, and they've probably never seen anything else of him. And I just think he was an absolutely exceptional goalkeeper. Oh yes, I mean. He's actually got more clean sheets than Andy Gorham's got caps. Mm. <laughs> That's maybe my fault, but <laughs> but I'd, I actually one of the hardest things I've had to do in football was to drop Jim late for the Euro '96 finals down in England. Now we had played in most of the probably all the qualifying games, and at that point Andy Gorham's eye was in. Andy Gorham was unbeatable, and Tommy Burns was a Celtic manager. And Tommy says Andy Gorham himself prevented us winning the league. It was Andy Gorham against Celtic, and, and now it, so I, I, we were down in England for Euro '96, and I told Jim two days before the game that I was leaving him out. I was playing Gorham, and he, he was shattered. You know, he, you know, he, he nearly a grown man in tears, nearly, but not quite. And I said, well. Give you time to phone your family and what have you. So he says, Is that me bombed completely? I says, No, I'll see how the game goes. We're playing Holland in the first game. And if it goes okay, obviously I'll, I'll not be changing it. But uh, or if, or if Andy Gorham gets injured. So we do nothing, nothing with Holland. And the day after it, he came to me, Jim Layton, and he said, I want to have with you. I said, I certainly, Jim. He says, I want to thank you. I says, Thank me. You know, like, the guy was shattered when I told him he wasn't playing. He says, Why are you thanking me? He says, I'm thanking you for giving me warning that I wasn't going to be playing. Because if you told me the morning of the game and you put me in the bench, my head would have been so scrambled. I wouldn't even have been in a fit state to be in the bench. And also, by telling me in advance, it enabled me to phone my family and say, look, I'm not playing. You don't need to come down to the game. Watch it on TV. And he said, so thanks for giving me a warning that I wasn't playing. Now, I learned a lesson from that, that if you're dropping an experienced player, give him due warning, give him the respect that he's due, that uh, it's time to come to terms with it. But I also learned... Never explain, never say Andy Gorham's a better goalie than you, you know, because that's inappropriate. You just say it's a football decision. I've made a decision, and I think the more appropriate man for this game is Andy Gorham. And in fact, I didn't even say Andy Gorham. I just said, I'm leaving you out, Jim. And if he said to me, who's playing? Well, there only was one other goalie. I'd have said, Gorham. Now, if he said, why? I said, look, it's a value judgment I've made. I'm not going into details, because if you start getting into details, they can come back to you. Say, well, he maybe say, well, he's better at short stopping than you, or he, he, he get cuts out across, or, he, or his distribution. You know, if you start getting into detail, you're in the discussion, you're in an argument. Mm. You don't want an argument with a player. And and I think the, 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 I, I learned. I, I listened to Alec Ferguson. I watched how he operated, and you just tell them, and it's it's a, a football decision, and it's based on what you think is appropriate for the the game. It might be for the opposition or it might be for your own team, but they've got to accept that. And if, the more you start to go into explanation and detail, the more comeback they have. And, and, uh, and of course, it was the press would, would uh, come at me if I left. I left my coist out, for example. You know, why do you leave <laughs> the press? You come at me my coist. He accepted it. He, can, he joked about it. You know, when he scored that goal against Switzerland, I think it was, uh, and he, he came over and he, he hugged me, he jumped in me and he, he hugged me and, uh, the press said to me afterwards, uh, you know, uh, they said to him, why did you run jumping the manager? And he said, I didn't go and hug him. I went to ask him why I wasn't on for the start in the other two games. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. 
he's got the right attitude, McCoy's. But you know, you, I think I found that if you're leaving someone out, tell them and give them straight to their face without uh, being soppy about it and apologetic. You're doing your job. My job is to put a team that I think is the best team for the job, and you're not in it. And it's quite hard to tell an international player he's no player, uh, especially as he's not used to that because he's used to being the top man at his club. Uh, so, uh, but if you, if you do it honestly, straight to their face and say, you know, and, and they ask why. So the reason why is because I think I've got someone more appropriate. For this, for this particular game. And that's all. Don't go into details about passing or tackling or heading or anything like that. You know, you, you'll get into a minefield and, and then they can come back to you with moans and groans. But uh, I learned that through Jim Layton and, and I've got the highest respect. I'm friendly with Jim Layton to this day. I think he was very foolish to retire with 91 cap because he would have got 100, I'm sure. Well, I would have been there. I would have, I'm certain I would have had to pick him because he was the best goalkeeper still. When he retired after the press gave him a hard time in a game at Tynecastle against Estonia, I think it was. And they had, we, I had to put uh, Dodgy on as a substitute to get us to win the game. You know, and I think Jim, I think it was, they were, they were winning 2-1. They'd scored two goals and the press were blaming Leighton for at least one of them, maybe two of them. And uh, he got, there was one paper had a photo of him on the back page and right across his face was the word flop, flop. I mean, so a player can handle that, but it's not nice for his family, his wife, his kids to see flop. And I think his family said to him, look, we're not wanting any more of that. And he said to me, I'm giving up international football. You know, I, I, I tried my best to dissuade him and keep him, but he, was, he said, no, my family won't let me play on. They're not wanting to read any more of that again. You know, so it's terrible. Mm. Okay, so, so we're moving on from Bobby here, so on to the next one, and yeah. we've already spoken a bit about him, we've got Jim Baxter here, so yeah. is described as an elegant midfielder who proved a constant thorn in England's side during the 1960s. He started at Wraith Rovers, and a deal to move to Burnley fell through when £2,500 was asked as a fee. Instead, he signed for Rangers. His finest moment came when he scored both goals in a 2-1 win over England at Wembley, which you mentioned. Well, that's um, hindsight, isn't it, from from yeah, Burnley? £2,500 yeah. and they could have got Jim Baxter. I know. Amazing. Uh, un- unbelievable. Yeah, well, as I said to you, I knew him well. well I was, when he came to start the pre-season training, I was the only player he knew because I was the guy that was on the treatment table when he signed. And the manager brought him, the manager was showing him around the dressing room and the treatment room and the, the bath and all, and out to this pitch. And there was I, again, on the table, getting the knee treated by David Kinnear, the remedial gymnast. And Baxter sat and we chatted for a wee while. And therefore, when he came to start training, I was the only one that he had met. And, 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 and obviously we were alph- alphabetically pegged, so I was sitting changing beside him. So I think because of that, I never was in the Rangers team. And they used to put up the team on a Friday. On the, and there were no subs in those days. You know, it was it was a 12th man. So they'd put the team up. And if I never even looked at the team because I knew I wouldn't be in it. You know, if you were doubtful, you would look at the team. And I'll never forget, you like this wee story. The, the, the groundsman used to come in and he would look at the team. Davey McLeod was his name. And Davey would look at the team and he would turn around and the boys would listen to hear. He would always have an opinion, right? So the, the Daily Record in the morning had Henderson to get contact lenses. Now, wee Willie Henderson, he was a wee bit blind, you know. And he, 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 could, he would say, oh, sir, where's that ball? You know, he was playing by ear. But anyway, 
Henderson to get contact, that was the headline in the paper. Now, the outside left at the time was Davey Wilson. And Davey Wilson was injured. And the replacement, the replacement outside left was a guy called Bobby Hume. And Bobby Hume was well known, I think, the first player that anyone knew in Scotland to wear contact lenses. So the outside left, Bobby Hume's got them, and the outside right to get them. So <laughs> David McLeod came in, the boys were all nudging each other, and he, he looks at the notice board, and it's the, the, the headed notepaper, Rangers football club, the big badge, and he, and he reads the forward line out, he goes, Henderson, McMillan, Miller, Brand, and Hume. He's shaking his head, he says, two blind wingers. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know whether to line the park tomorrow, or put curb stains along the side of it. <laughs> that was well, of course, I never had to look, but occasionally my name would be at the, at the bottom. You know, 12th man, very occasionally. It was a, an easy game somewhere. But uh, I, I knew I wasn't going to be in, in the starting team. So that was the Friday routine. And we would listen to Davy McLeod, and Davy would give an opinion what he thought of the team. Uh, Baxter was always in the team, so he didn't have to look. And I stayed in Hamilton, and two other players stayed in Hamilton. Uh, the captain at the time was Bobby Shearer. And there was another one, Eric Caldo. And so I got a lift in with them every morning. So And I could I could beat them at golf if I couldn't get, I get, do well at football. So I got I got some respect, you know, for uh, for being uh, a good golfer. <laughs> I think I think you're, you're underplaying it there a bit. You're, you're more than a good golfer, aren't you? Well, I was. I'm not mm. now. I was, well, I was a low handicapper. You know, I was in the last eight of the Scottish boys at that mm. time. And I was running up in the Lanarkshire Boys Championship. But at boys golf, under 18 golf, I was good at that level. But, you know, I've never, you know, I've never uh, maintained it because my knees not helped. And the fact that I was playing and coaching football so much, you had no time for golf. And Rangers wouldn't let you play after a Wednesday anyway. You weren't allowed to play golf. And I think that's sensible because golf's a, a, it's a, how can I put it? It's not a dynamic sport. You know, you're standing around a lot, but it's slow motion. You know, even with a caddy car, it's not uh, ideal. Although you're out in the open and you're healthy and what have you. But I think after a Wednesday, the manager wouldn't want you to be doing anything that would sl- make you sluggish for the Saturday. You want to be electric for Saturday. Mm. <laughs> Just on, on Jim Bax, how much were you aware of him before well, he was at Wraith Rovers, before he came to Rangers? Not, not to the extent that anyone would imagine. You know, you, he was a very good player. People knew this was a very good player at Wraith Rovers, just like David Cooper was a very good player at Clyde Bank. Uh, uh, but I think David had more prominence than, than Baxter before he came, because Baxter came as a good player, but no one, uh, I think, any would have predicted that he was going to be such a sensation as a player. And uh, he had this... Wonderful ability, but the arrogance to go with it, the confidence and the cockiness, you know. Uh, and he, he would uh, he would be the expert at not making an opponent and things like that and, and selling dummies to opponents, but just beautiful left foot. Everything about him was class, uh, uh, Jim Baxter. So uh, I've got to say that, you know, people say, who are the best players that you've been in a pitch with? Well, he's one of them, without doubt. Uh, you mentioned Golzine, he's another top, top quality, classy player. So, you know, I was quite fortunate uh, that some very, very good players. We had, that Dundee team that won the league, uh, that was Lenny uh, Hamilton and Cox. Hamilton and Cox were international fullbacks. Seath, Bobby Seath played for Burnley, Ewer and Wishart. Smith, Gordon Smith won Gordon the league Smith. with three different teams. 
Hearts, Hibs and Dundee. Smith, mm. Penman, Andy Penman, cousin, Rosine and Robertson. I mean, that was that was the main Dundee team. So they were they were legendary at that time and couldn't do anything wrong. Now, Rangers weren't that much ahead, or weren't ahead, in fact, because we won the league and, and we drew with them at home and beat them at Ibrox on the way to winning the league. And I think I said to you earlier, we lost at Celtic on the way there because I, I was to play against Lennox and... Uh, we, we were beaten 2-1 McNeil scored Billy McNeil scored the winner with a header so that wasn't so good but we still managed to win the league I'm, I'm trying to think Baxter could be maybe the best uh, quality player that I've been in a pitch with you know uh, as a player although I've been I think by far the best Scottish player of all time in my opinion is Kenny Dalglish and I was still assistant manager of Scotland when Kenny was uh, playing for Scotland. The last few, last few internationals he played to get these hundred and two caps. And I was assistant manager. Andy Roxburgh was the manager. But Kenny, I'll give you, a, I'll give you a joke, you know, a smile. Kenny, he's 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 good with the one-liners. He passed the ball to me in the training session. You know, I don't know. There was a wee kind of passing thing, and he passed it to me, and I miscontrolled it. I said, Kenny, give me it again. Give us a Pass again, I'll get more, I'll get the old skill back. He says, You can't get back what you never ever had. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Yeah. But you know, it was it was a quick one liner, Kenny. Mm. I'm sure he's used it before to others, but uh, he put yeah. me in my place. But there was no there was no nastiness. I think he's the best but Alec Ferguson thinks Scotland's best ever player was uh, Dennis Law. And, uh, I had to speak, you like like this one, I had to speak, Dennis was given the freedom of Aberdeen about four or five years ago, or maybe a bit longer than that, six years ago, I was the manager up there and they said, would you say a few words about Dennis? And I says, aye, I'd seen him at Aberdeen, met him a few times, but I didn't really know the guy, so I phoned Sir Alec, I says, Alec, can you give me anything, I have to talk, I have to give a talk, he says, yeah, I'll tell you. I met Pelly once, and this is true, he says. Pelly said to me, there's only one British player that could ever have played for Brazil, and that's Dennis Law. And he says, no one else I can think of. In England, Scotland, Ireland, we a lot. Dennis Law is the only one that was good enough. So he says, you can tell them that, Craig. And I says, I'll tell them that at the dinner. And I thought, that's a wee bit. I'll add a wee line to it at the end. So I said, <laughs> I, said uh, I spoke to Sir Alec to ask him about Dennis Law and he says he's loved by both everyone in Manchester loves Dennis Law whether you're City or United you know if you're one or other now he played for them both usually half of them will like you and half of them will be against you but the, the whole city loves Dennis and Alec, uh, he told me that and I said Alec Ferguson said to me that uh, Pelly told him there's only one British player I could have played for and I said it's obvious that Pelly hadn't seen Billy Dodds <laughs> <laughs>
and the girl came to me at the interval. She says, there's a man been on the phone for you. You have to phone him back. Uh, he says, it's, it's Alec Ferguson. And I says, aye, this is McCoy winding me up. <laughs> <laughs> so, but she gave me a number and it was uh, an Aberdeen number. So uh, uh, to the interval, I went into the office at the College of Education in the air and I phoned uh, the number and it, and it was Alec. And I says, I, he says, I, Brun, just quickly, I want to I have to take the Scottish team. They've asked me to do. Jock Steen passed away. I have to take the team. I'm getting my staff sorted. I would like you to, uh, how would you, you know, he says, how would you like the holiday of a lifetime? I says, where are we going? He says, Mexico. And he says, and the SFA is paying. I says, well, that sounds all right. He said, would you like to join us? He goes, the staff, I says, I need to ask off my work. I'm, I'm not full time through. I'm like, I've got a job. He says, ask for a month's unpaid leave of absence there and, and come and join us. Now, it just proves football's an old pals act, you know, because I was friendly with him. And I was a Clyde manager. I wasn't a manager of a Premier League team. And he says, I want you to, to join us. So I said, well, that'd be great. He says, by the way, Brun, we've got three games to play. But we won't let that interfere with our enjoyment. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a good line. Yeah. I said, right, I'll be happy. And we're taking, and I'm inviting Walter Smith, Archie Knox, and you. I said, that's great. I'll look forward to that. So they, they let me off. And that was my introduction to the SFA. And uh, when we, we went to Mexico, and again, without Dalglish, I hasten to add that because with Dalglish, we'd have qualified, I'm sure. We went without him. And uh, when Stevie Nicol missed him, Biggest certainty in front of the goal against Uruguay you've ever seen. Like I walked from the dugout to the bench at the side and scored it, and Stevie missed it, you know, and he was upset. But anyway, we didn't have to draw, I think, the game. We couldn't beat them. And if we'd won the game, we'd have qualified. And there's nobody going to tell me that if the wish had been playing, we wouldn't have qualified. But that was unlucky for Alec. And they offered them the Scotland job, as I think everyone knows. They decided to stay with Aberdeen to stay working and then that was in the summer that was in June and then by September October Manchester United were doing badly and they were struggling and I think they asked Gordon Strachan about the man at Aberdeen and Gordon said if you want success get him down here but if you want to rock the boat don't bring him down <laughs> because he'll but I think a direct to this football club everybody will be jumping to attention so the, the rest is history he, he didn't he didn't go to the Scotland job he went to Manchester United in September and Andy got the job with Scotland and I got the job of the under 21 team and assistant with the national team so I had a dual I had a great job I was part-time uh, assistant and, and full-time under 21 manager but the, the, the fixtures matched in those days they don't match anymore it's a separate tournament then if we played Portugal with the first team the, the under 21s played the night before so we got on the same flight come back in the same flight the same, the same if we had a home game. You know, when they came to play here, we would play at Hamden and the under-21s would play at Motherwell or at Kamarna or Tynecastle or somewhere so that the opposition could bring their team in the same flight. And that was a great arrangement, but for whatever reason, they've changed that now. So you need to have a full staff for the under-21 team rather than share, as we used to do. And of course, you took the under-16 team at the World Cup final? Yes, I, we did well with that team. What was that, it, what was that experience? Well, like that was that, great, that I think before that, one, one team that's never get, we'll never get any credit for was the under-20 team. We went to the World Championship because Alex Smith had the under-18 under team with Ross Matthew, I think, and, and they were, uh, they were uh, second in Europe, in the European Championship. And the top, the top three teams in, in under-18 went to the World Cup under-20, and it was in Chile. 
So I got asked to take the team because Alex Smith had taken it. Alec was a manager at, uh, I think at that time, at Dundee United for a while, but he couldn't get off his, his, his club job. So I was asked to take the Scotland under-20 team, and that was 1987. And it was a smashing team we had. It was a wonderful tournament in Chile. And we won our group, and we got to the quarter-final. And uh, we were very unlucky because we were beaten by Germany, West Germany, in penalties uh, after extra time. Uh, so that was a good tournament. Big attendances there in Chile at that. The average attendance at that tournament was 27,000, which is good for under-20 World Cup. Then, two years later, the under-16 team uh, were in the World Cup final, which was in Scotland. Yeah. And as a host country, we were there. So I got asked to take the team. Uh, Ross Matthew was an outstanding coach with all the young teams. And Ross was still there because Ross was working with every young team, the under 18, 17, 16, a lot. So, but uh, Ernie Walker asked me to take the team and uh, we got to the World Cup final in Scotland and the attendances were big, big. The gates were shut at Tynecastle in the semi-final, 28,000, I think. And uh, then the final, 52,000 at Hamden. Yeah. And again, we lost in penalties after extra time. It was a heartbreak. Uh, Brian, Brian O'Neill. Sorry, was that, was that Saudi Arabia? That what, Was that yeah, that yes. game? Mm, yeah, Arabia, I remember right? they were, that. They were older, there's no doubt. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, so, I mean, it was a, a marvellous uh, event, that one in Scotland. You know, people are saying, can Scotland cope with a tournament? You yeah. know, could we host a tournament? Well, the under-16s, not like the, the, the full World Cup, but we're hosting games in this European Championship coming up. And uh, I think, what are we, in Scotland, have we got three games in, in Scotland. Scotland, yeah. we our team's in two of them. Yeah. Uh, I think so. I think the fans in Scotland like a, a game of football and a good quality game. So I'm sure that it'll be a big success in Scotland this time. But that under 16 tournament was a huge success. Yeah. FIFA still talk about it. They say, well, in Scotland it was. And the success depends on the success of the, the host country. If, if your own team's doing well, the interest is increased. So we were doing well in that tournament. And uh, kind of, the, the, the only real man that caught the imagination was Dickoff, Paul Dickoff. He he played a few games with the national team, but not so many. Brian O'Neill uh, played for the national team. I'm trying to think. Andy there McLaren so many. was there. Sorry? Andy McLaren was there as well. Andy McLaren, aye. I, I gave Andy a cap uh, when he was playing for Kilmarnock. Uh, he played against Poland for the national team. Yeah, Andy's doing a wonderful job uh, with regard to uh, alcohol, alcoholism and drugs and things. And they get him to do talks and he admits that he was he was right off the rails. And he's, he's got a book. It's a wonderful book. I'm trying to remember this. Jeez, oh, the name of his book. It's just one word. Yeah, Addicted. No, it's like that. Tormented, tormented. It's tormented is one word I said to you. I'll tell you, it's a brilliant book. Tormented. We actually we, we had Andy McLaren on as, in an early podcast as well, and he was he was brilliant oh, as well, really honest, opening up and uh, talking. He's well, a great lad. Well, I've heard I've heard them talking to young players. Hmm. You know, they bring them the SFA, bring them to, to talk to them, to give them a lecture about being in the straight and narrow and that. And he's outstanding. You know, I've heard them. Uh, he, he was a he was a smashing boy and a, and a very good player. Hmm. He was also doing but, great great work um, in getting young players to actually, you know, that maybe couldn't afford football to actually get them out there and playing football. So he, uh, he was doing great work with that. Well, uh, Andy's, Andy's a credit to the game, but, you know, when I went down to Reading with one or two others, Tommy Burton signed him. Then he came back up to Scotland again. You know, he went from Dundee United to Reading and back up to uh, Colmarnock. 
but you know you couldn't I can't speak highly enough of Andy McLaren. Okay, listen, we're moving on to the next photograph in this section, and it's the Arsenal 1970-71 double cup winning, or double winning team, the cup and league. And it's Frank McClintock on the shoulders of the rest of the team. Yeah, well, you know, Frank McClintock, very, very highly regarded down there. And uh, interestingly, my roommate and Dundee went down to Arsenal, Ian Muir, and they became, now Ian Muir was a centre-half as well, and you could have a situation whereby Frank McClintock sees competition for me, and I better be wary here or, or not be so welcoming. But he said, Frank McClintock couldn't have been kinder, couldn't have been nicer, most very supportive when I went down to Arsenal. So uh, I don't know Frank McClintock. I've met him a few times when I was in London and going to game. I would say past it, but anyways, his career was coming was further on, coming to an end. So I never picked Frank McClintock, but he was an outstanding player and a smashing guy. And uh, he was friendly with Ian, Ian Ewer, who was my friend down there. Uh, so the Arsenal connection uh, with Scotland was, well, obviously the manager for a while was Bruce Rear. Then there was, uh, there was uh, Ewer and McClintock. George Graham. Uh, George Graham. Uh, George Graham was the manager as well. Uh, and I remember that the year after Dundee won the league, we were put out the Scottish Cup early for whatever reason. It must have been an offside goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, Arsenal were put out the FA Cup. So we took down and played them uh, down at Arsenal. And uh, I, I got a game. You know, I got a game when it wasn't maybe, a, well, it was important prestige enough. But I remember I had, we had to play against Arsenal. And uh, I, had to, I had to play against the glamour boy at the time, a guy called George Easton. And in midfield, and this boy, George Easton, again, he, he roasted me, you know, mm. he, he putting it round one side, me running around the other, putting it through my legs, <laughs> selling me a dummy. I'm not kidding. Uh, we actually did well. We drew the game down there. And then the next year, we came up to Aberdeen. And again, both times, uh, we, we, got a draw with, we got a draw with Arsenal. But I'll never forget, we went down to play. And the night before, uh, we went to see Chelsea were in the first division at the time. And Blackpool were in the first division. Friday night game was Chelsea in Blackpool and Tommy Dock was the manager of uh, Chelsea. So we went, they took the whole team, the Dundee team, to see this game and we went over to see Chelsea. So we had a nice weekend in London. Uh, the only problem was we had to play Arsenal <laughs> and they were a good team. But it's quite a, a thrill for me as a young boy to play at it was the old stadium at Highbury uh, Arsenal played and, and Easton was a, a wonderful player and uh, far too good for me. <laughs> And so we've come to the end of part one of our podcast with Craig Brown. Join us next time for part two to hear some more entertaining stories from Craig. In the meantime, I'd like to give a shout out to our charity partner, the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share. Our charity partner this season is the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share. This is a charitable organisation that provides various services and support to the local community, including the following. A school uniform bank, school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. They provide essential support to the local community in supporting individuals and families and we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money and support in the form of volunteers. We will also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. 
You can follow them on the West Dunbartonshire Community Food Share group on Facebook or westdunbartonshirecommunityfoodshare.co.uk for the website. And that's West Dunbartonshire with an N. You can also donate through our Just Giving page for the charity at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shoot the breeze one word. Also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoottb underscore podcast and at Scott's Footy Cards for updates and news on our charity partner. We'd like to say a special thank you to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of the story of the blues in the music for our show. You can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk where you can check out the details of upcoming gigs and new music. We'd also like to thank our producer Diane Jarden for her great work and support on the podcast. Please check out transmissionroom.co.uk where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clybank. So thank you very much to Craig Brown again there for being our guest. And as always, I'd like to thank Tom for being Tom. Thank you, Andy, for being Andy and Scott's Footy Cars on Twitter. And thank you, everyone, for, for li- listening to the podcast, for joining in. Um, I'm, I very much hope you enjoyed the episode there with Craig. We all did. So until the next time, let's shoot the breeze. <laughs>